This is episode number 228 with Alex Mashinsky of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, my fellow founders? Hope you are doing well. Uh, wherever you are around the world, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your earbuds with me. My name is Nathan Chan. I'm the CEO of Founder Magazine and also the host of the Founder Podcast. So let's talk about today's guest, Alex Mashinsky. This guy is a pretty big heavy hitter. He uh, actually was an early developer and founded uh, a protocol called VoIP, Voice Over IP. And uh, yeah, he's done some crazy stuff, a lot of different startups. He's now the uh, CEO of a company and founder of a company called Celsius. Uh, and uh, he's doing some crazy things in the blockchain space. It's interesting. I'm recording this uh, late November 2018, just for reference, uh, whenever you're listening to this. But right now, like the blockchain cryptocurrency space, it's gone really, really quiet. But there are a lot of startups and a lot of people doing things in this space. So it's always cool to hear these kind of stories, but also from someone that's really a startup veteran. Like uh, Alex is going to share with you so many battle stories, his latest vision, what it takes to build and grow a successful business. Um, like this this guy's incredible. Um, just a, like a little bit of a teaser. Uh, he, he, he shares actually even a story how he had an opportunity to invest $100,000 into uh, Google okay, for, for 10% of the company. Uh, crazy stuff. So that's it from me. If you are enjoying these interviews, please do take the time to leave us a review on iTunes, on Spotify, on Stitcher, wherever you are listening. It helps us so much and share this with a friend. I know you must have other friends that are entrepreneurs, founders, aspiring entrepreneurs. Doesn't matter. Share it with your friends. Do them a favor. We put out so much free content at Founder because we really want to just help you guys, you know, whether wherever you're at in the journey, starting, growing, scaling, you know, world domination, wherever it is you're at, we can help you with our content. We speak to some of the best entrepreneurs in the world, and here's one of them. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump to the show. The first question that I ask uh, everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? Well, I, I uh, unlike most people, actually never worked for anyone else. So I, uh, and I started seven different companies as a founder. Um, the funny story is that one time uh, when I was doing my first startup, uh, I didn't couldn't make a living, right? So I, I actually went to the to the city hall to get a job giving tickets to parking cars. There were cars had parked illegally and it was funny because like uh whatever I, I think it was like the third ticket i was riding this guy running to me and says mm. 
stop, stop, stop. I'm moving my car. And I turn around and it's somebody I was meeting with like two days earlier, pitching him on my next big thing. <laughs> and it was so embarrassing that uh, I never tried to work for anyone again after that. That was like, <laughs> it was like so that was, uh, that was probably like what, 35 years ago or something. But, uh, wow. Yes. Wow. You're a seasoned veteran. So, um, you, you're one of the inventors of VoIP and, uh, you had a foundational patent dating back to 1994. So was that kind of your first kind of play or what was your, what was your first startup? Cause I know like you've done some incredible things throughout your career. Um, and, and I'll cover, I'll cover those in the intro, but, um, but yeah, I, I'd love sure. to know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, so I was, uh, as a teenager, I had like a business uh, building and fixing all, all kind of electronic equipment. Uh, but my first real venture was uh, I, I used to trade commodities and, and uh, stuff like that, like physical commodities. But uh, my first real uh, venture was the, uh, building this uh, the first VoIP gateway back in, like I said, October '94. Uh, which was a you know uh, a great uh, but it, it, it definitely wasn't clear that the internet could carry voice or or could scale back then you know you had to dial in to get your email and it would take uh, whatever ten or fifteen seconds just to get connected and then you know ten ten minutes to log in and actually load something up right so mm-hmm. everybody was very skeptical that. Uh, the stuff could run better, uh, cheaper, or faster than uh, the traditional voice system. You know. Yeah, I see. So, um, like, how did you get into that? Like, how, how like, did you were you self-taught? Did you go to like university? Um, did you meet like business partners or co-founders or? Yeah. So, so before, yeah. So I I, I had a company called Voice uh, Smart, which built. Uh, the first uh, PC-based uh, voicemail systems. So we had a uh, basically back in the early '90s. Uh, if you wanted a voicemail system, you had uh, these really like proprietary computers that uh, played the voice message when you called in and routed you to the right extension and things like that. That was very expensive equipment, and we managed to do that on a traditional IBM PC. And uh, when I saw uh, the internet, I was like, "Hey, I can put I can put voice on the same box, right? I can take the same box and put some few extra boards there and process uh, um, um, incoming voice on a traditional TDM network, put it on the IP network, ship it on the internet, and do the same thing in reverse on the other side." And, and um, there were other people who experimented with uh, voice over Ethernet, but not voice over IP, right? Not voice over the Internet. Definitely mm-hmm. not voice over the public Internet. So, um, and our break came uh, in 95. I was lucky enough uh, to be at the right place at the right time. And, and back then, uh, the U.S. paid the billions of dollars in, in the, basically in settlement payments to all the carriers overseas, including Telstra and KDD in Japan and all these other guys because for every phone call from those countries there were three phone calls coming from the United States because it was always cheaper to call from the US uh-huh. and um, so the Department of Commerce uh, tasked AT&T to balance that uh, ratio of payments and they went to Bell Labs and Bell Labs couldn't come up with a solution and AT&T basically said to me hey do you have a solution show us you have something that works and we'll actually Use your equipment instead of Bell Labs, and uh, so we we put the first uh, system. I think it was in Korea, then it was in Japan, and we put then we put some uh, systems in Australia and so on. So I was country by country. I was the first guys to bring uh, VoIP into all these uh, um, foreign entities. It was all about bypassing the traditional um, phone systems. And now, you know, like if you look at what we're doing now, it's kind of uh, from voice of IP to money over IP. Now it's all about bypassing the banks and bypassing all the financial uh, restrictions that uh, force us to do things a certain way, which is obviously much slower and much more expensive. So kind of haven't really changed uh, what I've done for the last 30 years. I'm always uh, uh, 
breaking the barriers, you know, trying to fight the big guys who are making the toll collectors who make all the money, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Like, um, I really want to talk about Celsius uh, in a second, but um, before we get to that, I, I just really want to understand and and for our audience to understand the the breadth of your of your entrepreneurial journey and, and how much you've achieved in, in these past thirty five years, because uh, it's it's a really like incredible feat at all these things you've done. So, I guess. Maybe yeah. Let's let's fast forward. Uh, you know what? Let's fast forward. So so that was you know thirty five years ago. Tell us about Celsius and what you're working on now and um, this space around crypto. Yeah, so I've I've been active in crypto since two thousand thirteen. Um, so actually looked at the bit uh, the Bitcoin blockchain back in two thousand and ten and thought it was a crazy idea that's not going to scale and you know. I was a skeptic, right? It was very inefficient. It was slow. It consumed a lot of electricity. And, you know, I'm an efficiency guy. I do everything bigger, faster, cheaper. And here was a system that was slower, more expensive, and, and required tremendous amount of electricity to operate. And it was kind of like the opposite of the Internet. The Internet, if you think about TCPIP and how the Internet works, as you add more and more nodes to the Internet, it's... Um, it runs faster and faster and faster. Mm. And uh, the blockchain actually works the, other, the opposite. The, the, the blockchain is very fast when you have two or three nodes, but it's very slow when you have 10,000 nodes. So, so for me, the kind of the, the hard piece of kind of joining the revolution was about understanding that this is not about efficiency, but it's about just a different way of thinking, a different way of uh, achieving consensus, achieving... Uh, um, you know, agreement on what's a what's a what's the open open ledger is all about, and how to uh, create a really distributed global application. Because VoIP is the most the, the largest distributed application that exists today, right? And mm. so I understand that part very well. But but applying it to money um, took me a few years to really catch up with, and then start buying coins. Um, a, you know, helped a bunch of projects uh, that, uh, uh, you know, other blockchains and other uh, coins that came out to market. And then kind of seeing how the the crypto community couldn't scale, decided to start Celsius to really get the community from the early adopter phase to this mass adoption phase, which we think uh, is, is, is what's needed to really make this uh, a global success. Because today it's, you know, the Bitcoin is uh, 10 years old and there's probably whatever, 25 million users, 26 million users for Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, the internet had uh, 500 million users when it was 10 years old, right? So we are way behind on adoption uh, compared to where the internet was uh, in its infancy. So, uh, and the barriers here are that we don't really have a killer app. Like the internet had multiple killer apps, email and voice and the browser and so on, right? So, mm. Here we're we're missing the killer app, and Celsius basically saying, "Hey, the killer app is borrowing and lending. If you can do global distributed borrowing and lending and take these banks out of the way, we can actually use that to bring five billion people into the middle class, right?" And and that's so that's kind of our mission. We we're we're trying to really normalize and and um, um, decentralize who gets credit. Uh, how credit is being uh, provided, who gets to earn interest and how much and so on. Yeah, I see. So um, basically, uh, like, would you be able to just, um, I guess, uh, give our audience a little bit more of an insight into into how Celsius works? Sure, yeah. It's, it's actually very simple, right? If you have any cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin or Ether or other coins, yep. uh, today you don't earn any interest. So you know, those coins either sit on an exchange or they sit on your cold storage uh, wallet and uh, you hope that they're just going to go up in value. With Celsius, you can basically earn in income on those coins while they're sitting and waiting for to go up in value or you can borrow dollars against them. So if you need uh, to, uh, to borrow some dollars and you don't want to sell the coins because you have to pay taxes and uh, you're going to have less coins, they're not going to appreciate as much. 
so you can avoid that by taking a loan from Celsius, a dollar loan. So those are the two things. Earn interest or get dollars. Ah, I see. And you know, I'm curious, like what are like what are the challenges? Because I, I found that a very um I really liked how you broke it down around around like the you know, if if you because a lot of people do compare um you know, this cryptocurrency uh, blockchain movement to to the internet. Often people do use that as a comparison. I, I really like your comparison around, you know, the killer app and, and the amount of users, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what is your biggest challenge right now to grow Celsius? And, and do you believe, yeah, so what is your biggest challenge right now? So the, you know, the, the, the crypto community had three waves. The first wave was all anarchists, right? All these crazy people who wanted to blow up the planet and use this for illicit means. And and that was the smallest wave, right? Then we had the wave of libertarians. They were the opposite of the anarchists. They're like, we're going to save the planet with this thing, you know? And, 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 and they basically started coming up with all the ways we could uh, save the world by using these global distributed... Uh, uh, store value as a mechanism to compensate people and pay and raise money for projects and so on and so on. And then the third wave was the wave where all of the speculators showed up because they saw the, how quickly these things increased in value and they said, hey, we want to be part of this also. So um, those waves are are great, but they're not enough to again that they're like there's probably only 50 maybe 55 million active users right now worldwide for all the different coins right most mm. of them are bitcoin but uh, so that's out of a population of seven and a half billion right and and the uh, the question is what are, how do you bring the next hundred million or the next billion or the next five billion people right and and really that's what we're focused on is how do you make the user interface real easy uh, so back in the internet days in 1995, the browser came out, right? The Netscape browser, and immediately everybody downloaded it. Right? 100 million people downloaded it in, in, in I think six months. Wow! So because it completely it made the internet visible, uh, you could basically browse, uh, you know, you could surf everywhere you wanted to, and it normalized, standardized the access to the internet. And that that Netscape moment has not yet happened in the cryptocurrency world, right? So no one has figured out how to make cryptocurrencies, how to hide all that complexity and really provide the, that immediate access and uh, fungibility to this ability to basically store value, move value between all the countries around the world and so on. So that's, the, that's really what we have to solve. We have to solve making it real easy. Uh, and have people trust the platform. Right now, when you talk to people about cryptocurrencies, they're like, they don't know how to get in. They have no clue how to kind of jump on. And then they, they don't know what to do with it. Even if they have a few coins, they're like, okay, what do I do with it now? So, um, and what, what, what part of what we're trying to do is really show them that, okay, look, you, you have money, you put it in a bank, they give you 1% per year. And then they take your money and they give it to your neighbor and they charge them 25%. They make all the profit. How about we charge all these people 9% instead of 25%, we give you 5% of the 9 So you get to keep most of that profit, and it's a win-win because, you know, uh, everybody borrows for less and everybody earns more. So this is just one example of how you take uh, stuff that only banks can do and you make it available to effectively everybody on the planet. Yeah, amazing. And... When it comes to to this trend, like one thing um, it strikes me is is you're very very good at, at kind of picking trends. Um, you know, like when 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 uh, I was sent and and I did some research on you, like um, you you own all these different patents around VoIP, and you know you've done you know like you've raised over a billion dollars from venture and you know three billion in you've done over three billion dollars in ex like three billion ex in exits like. What I'm curious is is how do what do you look for when it comes to trends? Because this is like this is this is early like this is very very early stage adopter stuff and a trend that you're you're looking at and you believe in. Like what wh where, how do you find these trends? What do you look for? Um, what, well, what, yeah, yeah, it's 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 not like there is a, a book I can write and everybody could figure out what the next big trend is. It's it's almost like an extra gene, right? It's like you either have it or you don't have it. I, I don't 
spend a lot of time researching or uh, thinking about stuff or whatever. I, I look at something and I instinctively know if it's the next big thing or not. The problem is that many times you're being too early is almost as bad as being too late, right? So for example, in 2004, I started a company uh, called Groundlink, which was the Uber before Uber. And I was, uh, you know, I was five years too early, right? And and everybody thought that that was the dumbest idea. Like, why would you want, Alex, you're crazy. Why would you start a limo company? And I was like, no, you don't understand. It's not limo, it's transportation on demand. It's gonna work all over the world. It's gonna be instant. You're gonna use it on your phone. On the smartphone you don't have yet. You yeah, know? yeah. So so that was a little bit too early, right? And and uh, we were in over a hundred countries when Uber was just in San Francisco. Yeah. We had service in over one hundred countries and like uh, several thousand airports yeah, and wow. cities. And so what so we were too early and we didn't subsidize the rides. You know, Uber is an amazing company. They lose money on every ride and they hope they're gonna make it up in volume, you know. But we 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 actually made a profit and my investors didn't want to subsidize rides. So they ate our lunch, but um, we were too early, right? We were, we were basically, we weren't uh, as aggressive and as um, uh, financially savvy, I would say as, as Uber was. And, and the, our timing, which was right. We, we went through the recession of, of, of seven or eight. So we had to be profitable because, you know, you, know, you couldn't just continuously raise money from everybody. And so we were on a different track. So I think the, um, I hope my timing here with Celsius is better than my timing was with, uh, with uh, Groundlink. But my point is, is that, that most entrepreneurs, you know, uh, McKinsey did a 10-year study of uh, figuring out why the most successful company is successful. And everybody tells you, oh, it's all about the management or it's about marketing, whatever. And no, it's about timing. <laughs> so that's what uh, every research uh, shows. So, and most of these entrepreneurs are not, uh, it's not like they're masters of timing. They just, they were the guys who were at the right place at the right time. And VCs just tend to fund the companies that are, that have the most traction. So, and so it's almost like natural selection, right? And so here, uh, I hope our timing is right because I think the, the industry is, um, uh, you know, like uh, blockchain and crypto were one of the most searched terms in, on Google in the last year. Uh, so I think there's a lot of awareness, but uh, most people don't know how to uh, jump in. And it kind of reminds me of the internet 96, 97, where everybody knew what the internet was, but no one knew how to use it or what it was good for. You know? mm. uh, so we are, we are at that stage where people are still trying to figure out how do I, what is the blockchain, what is cryptocurrencies what are what what can i use them for uh, beyond just the basic uh uh way for speculators to to bet on this or that coin yeah because there seems to be a massive gap in the education piece like like for example my parents they, they've read about it um but they don't really know how it works or what exactly it is and and you know it, it went massive over the media it seems seems kind of quiet at the moment these days um it's not it's not as 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 uh as you know on the front papers as as much as it was um i guess end of last year um yeah people exhausted themselves from listening to crypto every day you know like uh, everything was blockchain and crypto and every day everybody was tracking where the bitcoin is and and you know it was just crazy right but you know these these are for me like the Bitcoin is almost like a foot soldier. It's not the main event. The main event is really, you know, several hundred years of centralization being disrupted by decentralization. And and Bitcoin is just like again the the front soldiers, the 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 you know the the where the war is today between centralization and decentralization. So because all these giant companies, the, I call them the barons of the internet, just like the robber barons of the railroad era or the banking era now it's the data era right and and the the ba- the barons of the internet the facebooks the googles the uh, who control all the data and are giant just giant toll collectors are squeezing so much out of the system that everybody's looking for a way to replace them and decentralization is the only way to replace them so it's not about fixing what we have it's about creating a whole new system that 
bypasses all of that. And and uh, uh, crypto slash uh, cryptocurrencies slash again blockchain are are the the only way to do that. So so we are still experimenting with what are those uh, perfect solutions. And we are it's like the Cambrian explosion, right? We have thousands of experiments going on at the same time. All wow. these ICOs that got funded. And to try to figure out healthcare and try to figure out the personal data and try to figure out how to move money around the world and how to earn interest and so on and so on. So each one of those is an experiment trying to see if, if that is the right path, that that is going to become the killer app that's going to disrupt centralized dominant toll collectors with the decentralized uh, crypto type solution. Yeah, amazing. And when it, when it comes to, um, and I know this might sound naive, but but for our audience, um, when you say a, a decentralized um, like a network, what do you mean by that? Well, so let's take voice over IP as an example, right? So voice over IP, a billion people use it every day uh, around the planet. Uh, no one is in charge of it. I mean, like if your VoIP doesn't work, like this is me and you just having a VoIP conversation right now. Yeah. If it doesn't work, uh, there's no one to contact, right? I mean, uh, no one's in charge, even though we're using this or that app. And uh, the service provided is really the global internet, right? So, so it's a completely decentralized application that uses the infrastructure that's available all, all over the planet to deliver a service that is free, uh, and it's safe, it's scalable, and it's and it's free. So, uh, so the same thing uh, can exist with your data or with your uh, data related to your health or data related to social media or or uh, your finances or anything else. Today, we, we're used to all that data uh, sitting in a centralized server, right? So if your, uh, your personal data, for example, sits with your hospital or with your doctor or sits with Facebook or anywhere else, and you actually pay or somebody else pays for you to access that data. So either the advertising company or somebody else pays for that service, right? There's a toll collector who collects a toll, and either in the form of a monthly insurance payment or a health bill or a phone bill or something else to get access to all those services, which is the opposite of how VoIP works, for example. So, so we believe that almost all services around the planet that have been built as centralized services will be replaced with decentralized services where no one is really in charge, but at the same time, the services provide as a utility to almost everybody on the planet. And, and, and that's where that's the big innovation about the blockchain. That's a big innovation about cryptocurrencies and about uh, the ability to basically um, have it safely stored all over the Internet. But at the same time, only you and the people you trust get, are getting access to it. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. That was a great explanation. So... I'm curious around uh, raising capital. You, you've raised over a, a billion dollars uh, in, in venture fund. Is that correct? Over, yes, over a billion. Okay. Hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'd be foolish and my audience, like the audience would be kicking me if I didn't ask, you know, what's the secret source of raising? Like, like do you have a rule book, playbook, anything anything key that, that uh, has allowed you to do do that or – Anything you want to share? Well, it's a, yeah. So, so again, timing is everything. When, when I was in my twenties, I, I immigrated to the United States and I ran around the, first I was in Europe. No one wanted to give me a dime, right? So I had to leave Europe and come to the U S and when I came to the U S I was pitching people on these ideas I had about technology and this and that. And, and, uh, all the VCs looked at me and said, Oh, you're too young. We need to bring adult supervision to really manage <laughs> The company and build something real and so every time i started a company they would bring somebody to run it for me and and so on and and now i'm the older guy in the room and all the vcs are telling me uh, oh you're too old we need somebody young who understands what the future looks like who really is in touch with technology because you're so old you must not know anything about this stuff so you know times have changed and 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 uh in, back in the 90s uh, and the 2000s and the idea for vcs was that uh, if you are the founder they have to replace you as soon as possible and put professional management to run the big companies and then they realized that the companies that were ran by founders 
created the most value, like Google and Amazon and, and, and Apple and so on. So now it's the opposite of that. Now, like the, the, the founder, they hope to keep the founder for as long as possible, you know? So, uh, so as I, you know, I, I, every company I founded, and I did about seven of them, Celsius number eight, uh, I had to pitch over 200 times. 200 right? times, wow. Over 200 people said no to me, right? Uh, like I did this project called Transit Wireless, which was uh, building the wireless system in the subways. Now you would say, that's obvious. What do you mean wireless in the subways? You mean no one, no one had it before that? No. New York, is, uh, New York was the last big city in the world where you, took the, you went down the stairs and your phone stopped working. I used, I used wireless in the subways in Paris uh, in the late 80s, mm. okay? Yeah. Uh, and in 2004, 2005, there was still no wireless service in New York in the subways, right? So, so I had to fight with the city for, for a decade, you know, basically to convince them that it had to happen. And they said, great, you know, it cost $300 million to build it. Uh, are you going to pay for that money? I said, yeah, I'll raise money. I'll build it. And uh, and when I went to investors, they were like, uh, "Are you crazy? You want us to give you three hundred million up front, and then maybe some carrier is gonna come in and and, and run the service uh, on your system." I'm like, you guys don't understand. Eight million people use it every day. Of course, somebody's gonna pay for it. No one wanted to have anything to do with it, you know. And and so it took a long time to fund it, long time to build it, and now uh, you know this company is worth over a billion dollars and. And obviously, you know, 8 million people use it every day. There isn't anyone who's not using that service, right? Because it's provided for free to all of the wireless op- uh, customers of uh, Verizon, AT&T, uh, T-Mobile, and Sprint. So because they basically had to come in and be part of the service. They couldn't afford for one of them to be in there and not the other guys, right? So, so it's obvious in retrospect, but when you're trying to raise the money, people think you're, you know, you're a little, the, you know, the, the distance between a genius and, uh, and crazy is very, very small. The gap there is actually a few inches. So, um, so that was a hard project to fund. It was a hard project to build. And, and I can say that about every company I've, I've created. Uh, nothing was easy, you know. Uh, so same thing with Celsius. I mean, it's, it's not an easy project. Uh, convincing hundreds of millions of people around the world that they should trust the system that you can't see, you can't touch, there's no branch, uh, there's nothing, right? You just have to trust this global network that it actually stores all your money and you can withdraw it at any time in any place on the planet. That does not make any sense. So for most people, it's a foreign concept and part of our mission is really, again, we're, we're not trying to provide service to the existing 50 million people. We're about the next 500 million and getting them to to trust us and trust the infrastructure that we're building. Yeah. Um, I'm taking a ton of notes. This is awesome, man. Um, really interesting. So you, know, you talked about uh, the company uh, around the, the wireless in in New York City. Like, I'm curious, like you said, you have to pitch over 200 times. Like, like did you have the same conviction that, that you had? Like, was it the same level of conviction after you'd done it? versus you know when you were pitching was that conviction the exact same or well look i i i can tell you that uh, um you you have to look at yourself in the mirror every day and convince yourself it's not like uh you don't lose uh, faith you know like we're um it's not just that we we were like even when people said yes to us like we eventually got uh, a big a big uh, financial firm to agree to fund the project and during the 2008 collapse, they went out of business, and we had to go and look for it again. So oh, wow. you thought you were you were already done and you were good to go, and then you lost your uh, main funding partner. So you never it's never done until it's done, right? So so um, so your conviction and your your grit uh, has to do with uh, with just. Uh, um, continuously convincing yourself that you're doing the right thing. I mean, uh, with Groundlink, uh, you know, I could not convince my partners, my financial partners, that I had the right uh, idea and that we had to pivot 
from being focusing on being profitable to focusing on getting as many customers as possible, which is what Uber did. And uh, we lost the, the race, right? So the company still exists. Even now, uh, Groundlink is in more cities than Uber, but uh, obviously we're not as big or profitable as Uber is. So, so I think um, uh, you don't win all the time. And I'm, uh, on my website, I have a bunch of the uh, situations in which uh, obviously I made tremendous mistakes. And you learn from your mistakes. I mean, that's, that's where you learn the real lessons. You don't learn from your successes. Those, uh, you know, most people, most successful people you talk to, you know, they will tell you, I, I did not learn much from my success. I learned most of what I know from my failures. Mm. Can you tell us about some of those failures and mistakes, like, like some of the biggest? Do you have uh, like four or five hours? Or? <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll give you one that that's uh, I'm famous for. Okay, so um, so back in '98, uh, I I had one of those really top uh, unicorns in New York City. I was famous, you know. Everybody was like, I, I had like the golden touch, right? Because I raised all this money, and mm. uh, my company was one of the top ranked uh, internet uh, unicorns back in in the day. And one of my investors called me and said, listen, you know, uh, you've done great, but it's time for you to help other people. And I have this Russian entrepreneur who has this crazy idea, but I really need you to check it out and help them out. Right. And, and I'm, I met with them in New York and, and they were pitching me on this crazy idea of, you know, like service for librarians, uh, service that could index the white cards, replace the white cards for librarians and this and that. And like, that's the dumbest idea I've heard in years. I mean, who needs... No librarians are going to buy software. It's, like, it's going to take you forever to sell it. And what else can you do with it? And he was like, oh, well, I can build a search engine. I'm like, we already have 10 of them, Alta Vista and Lycos and, and Yahoo. And he's like, no, no, ours is going to give the results in a different order. And I'm like, who cares about that? Do you have the alpha chip? That's what digital, digital equipment had, a chip that was running 100 times faster than the IBM uh, a 8086 or whatever the processor was, 286 I think was the processor at the time, 386. So I'm like, can you compete with the Alpha chip, which is running, uh, you know, 64 bits uh, versus you're running at 16 bits, you know? And he was like, no, I can't compete with that. I'm like, well, I'm not investing in this project. Besides, how much do you need? Oh, I need, I need a hundred thousand dollars for 10% of the company. And, and that was Sergey Brin with Google, you know. Yeah, so. Wow. So sometimes when you think you know too much, you know nothing, right? And, and obviously they've done a phenomenal job not just conquering the search engine space, but also creating this dominant operating system that is, is on 80% of all the phones in the world and knows everything about everybody, right? And that they know more about people than the CIA does, right? So, so, so sometimes... Uh, uh, luck just stares you in the face, and you're just uh, your choices. You just walk away, you know. So, mm. so, um, so I have a few of those, you know. Like I can tell you that, uh, um, even you know, like after I did VoIP and everything, and Arbanet and everything, the and the investors uh, that looked at Skype when Skype was just a little startup uh, called me. We're talking on Skype right now, so it's an appropriate story. But they called me and they said. Uh, can you help us with due diligence on this crazy, I think it was Lithuanian company, right? They were based in Lithuania or something. Yeah. And uh, so I called them, I had a chat with them, and I know they came from the Kazakh team. And I was like, great, you guys solved all the ways to get around all the firewalls and everything else. So the stuff works in every environment. But you're never going to make any money because your service is free. And they're like, well, we're going to sell Skype in and Skype out. I'm like, oh, that's a shit service. You're never going to make any money. And I was right. They never made any money, but that, that doesn't matter. They still sold the company for like $9 billion. So being right doesn't mean you're right. So uh, sometimes you, knowing too much is your main obstacle. And, and the people who have conviction and have a belief in something sometimes know the least, not the most. Because if you know everything, then that usually is um, you know, in your way. It's not always helping you get to the right result or make the right financial decision or or the right investment or whatever. And, and uh, you know, I know a lot of investors who are, uh, you know, my wife always makes jokes with me that she says, if I had a lobotomy, I would be a billionaire uh, several times over because, you know, I just, uh, I know too much, you know. So 
I know a lot of investors who just spray and pray and they just hit a bunch of unicorns and they're doing great, right? So, mm. so um, if you landed in San Francisco and you just uh, threw money around, chances were you're going to do very well. You didn't have to hit all the best companies. You did, you did great no matter what. So uh, at any time in the last 20 years, right? It didn't matter what you did in the last 20 years, you would have done very, very well spreading your investment across uh, almost any company in San Francisco. So uh, so timing has a lot to do with it. And uh, um, again, I'm not a professional investor. I'm more of an idea guy, right? The, I'm the, I come up with a vision, I come up with a strategy, and then I put a team together and raise money uh, to execute. And that's kind of what we're doing here at Celsius. And now we're at the scaling up phase, right? Now we're kind of bringing in the professionals, the marketing guys, the finance guys to really uh, figure out how to convince uh, hundreds of millions of people that they need to stop using their banks and um, earn five times as much with Celsius, right? So, uh, so it's a, a lot of it has to do with trust, right? So, so I'm like the guy carrying the flag and convincing people that just like what, what, did, what we did for VoIP, where we allowed a billion people every day to use stuff for free. I, used, I remember calling Australia was $3 a minute. You know? Wow. I mean, and, and calling Japan was $3 a minute, a minute, you know. I used to remember I used to sell faxes with half a page because that was less than one minute. You could get half a page through a fax machine and they would not charge you the second minute. So you could do it for $3 instead of $6. That's right. Crazy. So those were the days. And now... When you, when, you know, like my daughter, when I show her a picture of a phone that used to have a, a cord attached to it, they're like, why do you need a cord? You know, like, <laughs> you know, so they think everything is, was always wireless, right? So, so just, uh, uh, we sometimes underestimate how quickly things change. But if you look at banks, the banks have not changed in 700 years. Banco di Pace, which is the first bank in Italy that was created in Siena, and they had a branch and they had a bank manager and you walked in, you gave them gold coins and they gave you a little note that the bank manager signed and said, I gave you three, you gave me three gold coins. And you could come with, at any moment with that note and they would give you back the gold coins. That was the first bank branch 700 years ago. So, oh, wow. And that hasn't changed. We just went from physical gold to paper notes, to digital money, and now we went to cryptocurrencies. So there were only four evolutions in money in 700 years, and this is the biggest one. Money is bigger than anything. Money is bigger than the internet, and bigger than cars, and bigger than uh, oil and gas, and bigger than real estate. It's everything, right? So this, when we're talking about decentralization of money, that is a bigger tsunami wave than everything ever happened until now. And that's what I think people underestimate. They think, well, it's, eh, this whole crypto thing looks like just a little wave inside the internet. No, it's not a wave inside the internet. The internet is a wave inside this decentralization. Yeah. So, man, oh, you're blowing me away. Like, uh, I, can really, I can really hear, hear your, your conviction and, and your vision. And, and um, look, we have to work towards wrapping up. But I have a few more questions. Um, when it comes, you know, you said you 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 you've come. You're an ideas guy. You you, you come up with the vision. You hold the flag, and uh, you, you scale. You, then, you know, you're in the scaling up phase. When it comes to when it comes to hiring, are you looking for experience uh, or attitude? What do you usually choose, experience or attitude? Well, I, I think uh, smarts and originality kind of beats uh, almost everything else. If you hire smart people who are self starters. And they can figure anything out, you know, like uh, we did our ICO, for example, we were, you know, we raised to uh, just over $50 million and we did everything differently than every other ICO before us, right? We didn't raise money from big investors. We did not focus on the United States. We, because we were building a community for us, it was all about, let's bring as many users as possible who believe in our vision, right? Because that's what we're trying to build. So we, we, we focused on, on the stuff that was important for our community, because it's all about the community, and and uh, and we were one of the most successful ICOs of the first quarter of 2018, and everybody's ran after us and said, "How how did you know? How did you do this?" And we're like, "We didn't know. We we just did it. You know, we we thought this was the right to do it, and and uh, you know, 
and we did not include almost any VC. Like we were the opposite. When VCs came to us, we said to them, "You're you're not part of the community. Why would we include you?" <laughs> right. So so, and this is after building seven companies that were all VC backed. Right. So. So why? Because the team, everybody on the team, and it was a young team, more than half of them were women, felt that that was just the wrong thing to do. If we, if we have a real mission and a real, a real passion for this, then uh, let's follow what we're telling everybody, right? Let's not uh, dilute our message and let's not cheat by uh, going uh, the easy route of just taking a lot of money from the guys who want to come in early and make just a giant profit on the backs of all the people who actually were supposed to help. So, so, you know, and that's, it's definitely not obvious. That's not the obvious answer. Uh, but when you have a good group, group of people with original thinking, uh, you're going to do the right thing. So, so our hiring is, 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 has more to do with like, okay, are you passionate about the subject? Are you smart? Are you self-starter? Are you going to figure this out? Or, or, you know, if you, you know, I always joke that, that, you know, you go to school and you only learn what everybody already knows, right? And, and you go to life and you have to do stuff that no one has done every day because that's how you create value. You don't create value by doing uh, stuff that everybody knows. So, so when you start a young company that is in a new space, it's all about uh, breaking new ground and, and figuring things out and, and original thinking and, and, and things like that. So that's these are the kind of characteristics of the people we look at. Yeah, love it. And when it comes to uh, last question, two last questions. Uh, uh, what's next for, for Celsius? Um, what, what's the grand plan to 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 really um, be be a shining beacon for for this space and, and and be that you know potentially that killer app that we spoke about, um, like 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 the browser. Um, and then uh, where's the best place people can find about more about yourself and your work? Yeah, so um, it, it's actually harder than I thought. I mean, the the uh, uh, we we thought that there's going to be uh, barriers to adoption here, but we definitely did not expect, uh, for example, the three largest banks in the United States, not just that they copied Ethereum, right? They copied all the source code and created their own system, but they also at the same time uh, went and prevented U.S. citizens from using their credit cards to buy cryptocurrency. Bank of America, Citibank, and J.P. Morgan blocked uh, all their users. That's I think that's illegal, but no one's you know fighting with them in court, right? So so that kind of like completely puts the the brakes on our ability to convince people to come and uh, try crypto out, right? Try try to buy cryptocurrencies or earn interest or anything else, because obviously they see us as a threat. So. This is like war. This is like Russia invading France, <laughs> uh, stealing the Mona Lisa, and then throwing an atomic bomb on France just to make sure that they kind of clean up after themselves. So, so this is, you know, that's the fight. This is war, right? This is decentralization. This is the centralized companies saying, oh, you want to mess with us? Here, here's an atomic bomb. Let's see what you do. And we stole your Mona Lisa. We stole the Ethereum source code. You know, and we're going to call it something else. And in a few years, no one is going to remember that you wrote this. So, so I think this is, this is the biggest battle that I've, I've fought in my life. Uh, look, I fought with the phone companies. Believe me, in the, in the 90s, uh, going and telling AT&T, we're going to give voice for free. When they were making 90% of all their profits from international voice communications, that was, those were not fun conversations, right? Mm. But eventually, AT&T was our largest customer, right? In, in 2004, when Arbonnet went public, AT&T was my largest customer. So, so here, uh, this is 10 times worse. This is, uh, you know, this is a fight. I feel like I feel the weight of the community on my shoulders because, you know, no one wants to take on this fight. No one is out there uh, saying, hey, I'm going to go face to face with, with uh, Jamie Dimon and, and, and fight it out with him. He's worth uh, whatever, twenty trillion dollars in assets, and I have uh, fifty-three million that I raised from fifteen thousand people all over the world. You know, that is the David versus Goliath that we're facing here, right? So, uh, so it's it's you know, the, the, this is not a small battle, right? And and uh, most people don't 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 see that, right? Most people think, well, you guys are just uh, trying to solve a few problems of how to move money around the world. I mean, like, no. This is the future of finance, right? Is it going to belong to the banks 
or is it going to belong to the people, right? It's not about a government. It's not about a border. It's not about a country or central bank. It's about all of us owning our future versus governments printing money and diluting us uh, without us having any say, even though we work really hard to make all that money or create all that value. So, so like you said, I was, you know, I was very successful. My first, you know, 52, very successful. And I hope to dedicate the next 50 years to this battle, right. And really fight it out. Cause, cause if, if, uh, if there's any legacy I want to leave behind is, is, is winning this battle, right? This is the biggest battle of my life. And um, how you find out about it, we have uh, go to Celsius.network or to Telegram, uh, look at Celsius Network on Telegram and join us, uh, follow. Uh, we have a lot of, we have a, a YouTube channel that has uh, hundreds of interviews and video uh, clips and all kind of educational stuff that kind of trying to under- explain to people why this is important and why it's, for the people, by the people, it's not. This is not about profit, right? This is this is all about taking everything we generate and giving it back to the people who are members in our organization. So, um, and uh, thank you for you know having us. And I'm calling the call to action to your viewers or listeners is that uh, every one of them, if they believe what we're trying to do, has to bring ten people into crypto because that's the only way we're gonna win. We're going to win if each one of us takes actions every day and bring their friends and family into this because this is a much brighter future than hoping that the United States or Australia or, or the EU is going to stop printing dollars or euros. And, and uh, you know, the dollar lost, if you put the dollar versus the Bitcoin, the dollar lost 99.999 of its value over the last 10 years. Okay. Wow. That's how much it got diluted versus the, the Bitcoin. And that's going to continue because that piece of paper that you call $100 has over $160 worth of debt behind it. And most people don't understand that. It has negative net worth, right? And, and it's because the United States is $22 trillion in debt, right? Each citizen in the United States owes $165,000 to people all over the world, including China and Japan and Korea and so on. So... So all that debt is coming due, and and somebody is going to have to pay it. Uh, so all this money that we're printing, uh, you know, is worthless in reality. So crypto represent the alternative universe of that. So the bubble is in the dollar, is in the bond market, is in the stock market. All those things are in all time highs, and and the cryptocurrencies represent the opposite of that. They represent actual limited supply of something where you can put your assets into and know that. They're still going to be worth that or more tomorrow. Amazing. Uh, look, this is a great conversation. Uh, I think, uh, you know, even, even just uh, just hearing you speak and even even the us versus them, I, I, I think that's uh, very powerful, just the way you're communicating your vision. And, uh, yeah, look, this is an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Alex. Thank you so much for your time. And, uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share. Yeah, and thanks for the opportunity. And again, I I hope your viewers, uh, your listeners are uh, going to have as uh, much passion as I do about the subject and do their learning and make a decision for themselves uh, who's right and who's wrong. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic And I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.